Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. We live in a broken world. That's not news to any of us, especially after the week like the one we just endured. No one is exempt from the problems and pain that accompany us on this journey through life. We've all been hurt. We all hurt others. Our world is broken. But I want to clarify something really important this morning. Our world wasn't broken by mistake. So I think many of us probably think of the world like a snow globe that was accidentally dropped and shattered into like a million pieces when we think of the world being broken. But that's not what scripture tells us. The Bible makes it clear that God's perfect world was broken when humanity made a decision, a decision to turn our backs on God's way of peace and flourishing for everyone in favor of our own way, which resulted in hierarchies and oppression. In other words, the world was broken by intentional choices. And most of these choices involved an individual or group exerting power over another individual or group, usually through violence or exploitation. These choices of domination are still being made today. We see them all around us in the neighborhoods we live in and in countries on the other side of the globe. We also continue to navigate the brokenness caused by these kinds of choices in the past. As we've talked about many times, our world is home to massive inequalities between people because of some folks exerting power over other folks. These choices, both in the past and ongoing, create brokenness, not accidentally, not haphazardly, not like a snow globe being dropped and shattering. Our world is broken in a way that pits God's image bearers against one another and rewards oppression for the purpose of domination. Mark Laberton, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, puts it like this. Each of us participates in a world of disordered power. Disordered power. Personal and systemic. It's everywhere. And none of us are free from being its perpetrators or victims. And frequently, we are both. No one is exempt from the broken world of disordered power. And as Mark says so well, most of us receive both advantage and disadvantage from this brokenness. We are both perpetrators and victims, privileged and oppressed. Now, we usually avoid talking about these topics because it can feel very awkward and vulnerable. 
especially if we're trying to be introspective and examine our own complicity in these things. This is especially true for those of us who experience higher levels of privilege and advantage. But understanding the brokenness of our world and the disordered power that exists inside of it is absolutely vital if we want to participate in Jesus-centered justice work. We have to understand this. Because justice is not trying to pick up random pieces of a broken snow globe and put them back together. Justice is choosing to confront the disordered power in our world. It's standing up. Standing up to those who dominate others and standing up for those who are being marginalized. Last week, we began this teaching series called God of Justice. And during the intro message, we established that justice is a central theme throughout the biblical narrative. Talked about hundreds of times in both the Old and New Testaments. That's because, as Dr. King said so perfectly, justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Jesus said the most important thing in the world is to love God and to love our neighbors. Do you remember that story? They asked him, what's most important? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So if justice is correcting everything that stands against love, then justice is correcting everything that stands against the most important thing in the world. That makes justice a pretty important thing. Justice is love in action. Fixing the brokenness caused by the forsaking of love. And when we understand that, it makes sense why the prophet Isaiah would say, the Lord is a God of justice. It is core to his being. Justice is at the center of God's mission. Because injustice is anything that gets in the way of humanity experiencing and expressing God's greatest desire for us, love. During this series, we're looking at how God partners with humanity for the purpose of justice all throughout Scripture. This morning, we're going to focus in on the story of Moses and how God worked in and through him to bring justice to the people of Israel while they were enslaved in Egypt. Now, Moses is one of the most complex characters in all of Scripture because like so many of us, Moses finds himself at the intersection of various identities and circumstances totally beyond his control some of which result in privilege and power, while others result in marginalization and oppression. See, Moses was born at a time when his ethnic group, the Israelites, were the enslaved minority in Egypt. And if you aren't familiar with the story, I want to set the scene for how we got there. So it starts with a guy named Joseph. And what did Joseph have? What did he wear? Coat of many colors. Not a few colors. Many colors. We meet Joseph back in chapter 37 of Genesis. You see, Joseph is this guy named Jacob's son. And if you've ever heard of kind of Old Testament description of God as being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is kind of that lineage of the people that become known as Israel. So Joseph is Jacob's favorite child. And because of that, Jacob gives Joseph this coat, this coat of many colors. And his siblings get upset. Then they get way more upset because Joseph starts having dreams. And in these dreams, coincidentally, he's in charge of all the other siblings, and they are doing his bidding. And Joseph makes a grave mistake, which is that he tells his siblings about these dreams in a way that is just like, yeah, this is going to happen, guys. Prepare yourselves for it. And they get upset. They make this plan to beat him up and to sell him into slavery in Egypt and then to tell his father, Jacob, that he's died. He's been mauled by a bear. 
But Joseph's story is not over. He goes into slavery in Egypt. He rises up to prominence in Pharaoh's house, becoming actually second in command to Pharaoh, overseeing a number of different things, including preparing for something else he had a dream about, which was this huge lack of food, this huge drought. And so Egypt stores up all this food. And so when famine hits and Jacob's family needs food, they go to Egypt. And guess who's there to greet them? Joseph. And Joseph isn't petty. Joseph doesn't turn them away. Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Welcome. Come and eat. Come and stay. Come and be guests in Egypt. And they do. And so this family that turns into the people of Israel are welcomed into Egypt. Now, the book ends with Israel as guests in Egypt, but then 400 years go by in between the end of Genesis and the next book in the Old Testament, which is called Exodus. So when Exodus starts, the people of Israel, they're no longer guests in Egypt. They're slaves. Exodus 1 records how it happened. It says this, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor." But the Egyptians, led by a pharaoh who was treacherous and power-hungry and had given in to the influence of all kinds of evil, didn't stop there. It says, the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah. Remember those names, they're important. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So Pharaoh is so obsessed with power that he will stop at nothing to maintain it. The Israelites had been in Egypt for hundreds of years up until this point, significantly longer than the United States of America has been a country. And Pharaoh decides to vilify, oppress, and enslave, and even murder them because he's afraid that they might pose some threat to his power, which was the most important thing to him. Can you imagine that happening in America? Well, you don't have to because it kind of did a few different times. But on February 19th, 1942, 80 years ago last week, President FDR signed something called Executive Order 9066. By show of hands, how many of you have ever heard before now of Executive Order 9066? A few of you. This order authorized the incarceration of nearly all of the 120,000 Japanese Americans during World War II. Two-thirds of them were born and raised in the United States. These tens of thousands of Americans were taken from their homes, stripped of their property, businesses, and savings, and forced to live in internment camps with horrible, horrible conditions. I'm not even going to get into it because they are really difficult. Many of the camps were actually converted horse racing tracks, so the living quarters were livestock stalls. At first glance, what happened in Egypt may seem archaic and distant to us, but it's not. Wicked leaders are making decisions to violently oppress people for the sake of power all around us. All around us. And the only hope we have of combating this evil is for everyday people, everyday followers of Jesus, to courageously stand up, speak out, and pursue justice. As the famous saying goes, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people 
to do nothing. The Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, they decided to do something. They decided to leverage the little bit of power they had as midwives for justice. They disobey Pharaoh's command, and they let all the baby boys live. And when Pharaoh questions them about it, they tell him, the Hebrew women are giving birth so fast before we can even get there. We can't help it. They're so strong. This is the first flicker of justice work we see here. It seems like a small act of defiance, but it becomes the spark which, you, which ignites a fire of justice that burns throughout the rest of this story. Shipra and Pua are incredible. They're heroes. But as they often do, things get worse before they get better. Pharaoh gets angry that his orders have been disobeyed. He gets angry that Hebrew baby boys are still being born, and he decides to expand his order to encompass all people in the land. So if anyone sees a male Hebrew baby, they are now legally required to kill him. Exodus chapter 2 begins with Moses' mom in an impossible situation. She's just given birth to Moses, a Hebrew baby boy, and she has a choice to make. Obey the law and kill her son, or break the law and risk her own life. She chooses to become a criminal another act of defiant justice. And she keeps Moses hidden until he's three months old. But after he becomes too large to hide, she decides to put him in a basket along the banks of the Nile River, set him adrift, put him in God's hands. But she sends Miriam, his older sister, with him to keep watch. Well, pretty soon, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the Nile to bathe, and she finds the basket. Exodus 2.6 says this, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, Pharaoh's daughter has a decision to make here. I love how Dominique Gilliard describes this scene in his phenomenal book that you should all get called Subversive Witness. He says this, this is one of the most riveting scenes in scripture. As Moses' life hung in the balance, Pharaoh's daughter found herself confounded by the power of proximity and its ability to transform her vision and the ways in which she had conformed to the pattern of the world. Pharaoh's daughter was discipled to be xenophobic. She was raised in a context that celebrated and rewarded ethnic bias, enmity, and oppression. She was groomed by her father with deeply ingrained prejudices who surely intended to pass these beliefs down to his children, and certainly spewed vitriol and propaganda amid family gatherings, she was primed to carry on the family tradition of hatred. But Pharaoh's daughter knew what she was supposed to do if she encountered a Hebrew boy. His very existence was evidence of lawlessness and an insubordinate Hebrew parent. Yet as she stood in the water with all this knowledge, she was unaware of the presence of the Spirit of God hovering over the water bringing chaos into order by transforming her vision and bringing forth a new ethic of belonging, a foretaste of the coming kingdom. Hence, when Pharaoh's daughter opened the basket and looked into Moses' eyes, she did not see what she expected to see, a threat, an enemy, someone whose life did not matter. Her feelings were not what she may have anticipated Repulsion, disdain, and the hatred her father coerced her to feel. Instead, she felt compassion. Whether she realized it or not, God revealed to her that Moses had inherent value as another human being 
though she may have not had words for it, we know this because Moses was also made in the image of God. I love that. Pharaoh's daughter here finds herself at an intersection of privilege and oppression. See, she's privileged, right, because she's a member of the Egyptian ethnicity and Pharaoh's household. But as a woman, her rights were severely restricted. In fact, we don't even know her name. She's referred to only throughout this entire story as Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter also finds herself at a crossroads. As she gazes upon the face of baby Moses, she has a choice to make. Break her father's law, the most powerful man in the nation, and risk banishment and even death, or kill this vulnerable baby boy who she now feels deep compassion for. Like the Hebrew midwives and Moses' mom, Pharaoh's daughter chooses an act of defiant justice. She risks everything in order to leverage the privilege that she has to help someone in need. One of the reasons I love this part of the story so much is because it demonstrates that God can break generational cycles of hate and bigotry. This is really beautiful news that many of us need to hear and grab a hold of based on our families of origin. Dominique in that same book puts it like this. This story shows that freedom and liberation are possible for everyone, even those who descend from families who have devoted themselves to sinful ideologies of supremacy and have enacted systemic oppression and social injustice. Freedom and liberation are available to anyone and everyone. So Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He ends up growing up in Pharaoh's house. Can you imagine what that was like? Little Hebrew boy, being treated like royalty while your people are enslaved, being given every privilege while your people are being oppressed. After a while, it becomes too much for Moses. Exodus 2 verse 11 says this, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses is overcome with anger as he watches his people being beaten, and so he kills the Egyptian who's doing harm to the Hebrew. Was that justice? Maybe in the eyes of the world, but I don't think it was in the eyes of God. Because like we talked about last week, the world's idea of justice is often punishing and retributive, but God's justice is liberating and restorative because fighting violence with violence and evil with evil is never God's way. As Dr. King so famously said, violence only begets more violence. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Robert Hayden, the first black poet laureate in America, put it like this. We, not, we must not be frightened nor cajoled into accepting evil as deliverance from evil. We must go on struggling to be human, though monsters of abstraction police and threaten us. When we fight fire with fire, everything just ends up on fire. When we fight violence with violence, everybody just ends up hurt. We must fight hate with love, violence with nonviolence. This was a lesson that Moses had to learn the hard way. 
Because after murdering the Egyptian, Moses' life was threatened by his adoptive father or grandfather, Pharaoh. So he flees Egypt and he goes into hiding. He marries, he has kids, and he starts a life as a shepherd in this foreign land, leaving everything else behind. Many years go by, and then one day, as Moses is tending a flock of sheep, God shows up in the form of a burning bush. And he says this, The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, Moses is a little bit taken aback, understandably, right? He's a little bit afraid by this call from God. The last time he tried to do justice work, it went horribly wrong. And so Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God, you have the wrong guy. Moses, he knows he's not some powerful person any longer. He doesn't live in Pharaoh's house anymore. He's not a freedom fighter. He lives in the middle of nowhere. He tends sheep for a living. Fun fact, they're not even his sheep. (laughs) They're his father-in-law's sheep. (laughs) Who am I? Moses asks. I identify with this question from Moses so much, and I know that many of you do too. When God calls us to step out in faith and participate in his justice work, our first response is often, who am I? Why me? Why not Some other person who has more time or money or privilege or power or a better position or more experience. If you've ever felt that way, I want you to pay really close attention to what God says to Moses. Here's the whole thing in context. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. God answers Moses' question with a promise. I will be with you. He doesn't say, Moses, get out of here, man. You're great. Come on. You're smart and strong and perfect for this job. He doesn't gas him up. He doesn't build him up. He doesn't like try to... He makes a promise. My friends, it does not matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from, or where you find yourself right now. If God has called you to do justice work on his behalf, he will be with you all the way through it. Moses asks, who am I? And God answers, I will be with you. That's exactly what happens to Moses. Many of you probably know the rest of the story, right? Moses goes back to Egypt and tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh refuses and plagues rain down upon the Egyptians until he finally relents and the Hebrews go out. And then on their way out, Pharaoh changes his mind, sends his armies after them. But God parts the Red Sea so that the Hebrews and the mixed multitude who are with them are able to escape. Freedom, liberation, justice. What a story. But I want to remind us of something really important. And that is that Moses might be the main character in this story, but none of it would have happened without Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives, defying Pharaoh's orders. It wouldn't have happened without Moses' mom and sister breaking the law. And it wouldn't have happened without Pharaoh's daughter choosing to disobey her father. I think it's so beautifully ironic that this movement was originally led by five women. Pharaoh commanded that every baby boy be killed 
because he assumed that men would be the ones who rose up and came after him. I love how James Bruckner says it in his commentary on Exodus. Pharaoh thought the men were the threat. In fact, it was women who continued to outfox him. <laughs> Moses, Shipra, Pua, Moses' mom, his sister Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter, each of these people chose defiant justice over unjust obedience. They chose to break laws. They chose to become criminals. Even with extreme risk and often while battling severe disadvantage, they chose to lever, leverage whatever power or privilege they had for the purpose of God's justice. And God used their decisions, not just to save the life of one person, but to set an entire nation free. And again, this isn't just some ancient and archaic story. God is still working this way. God is still doing justice work in the world today this way. For almost three years, Japanese Americans lived in those internment camps. Horrifying conditions. Until God used courageous work from Mitsui Endo and James Purcell to bring justice. Mitsui Endo was a Japanese American citizen. She was born in Sacramento in 1920. She grew up in a Methodist church got a clerical job after high school. She was 22 years old when she and her family were rounded up and taken to an internment camp. James Purcell was a white guy, born in San Francisco, 1906. When Executive Order 9066 came down, he volunteered to work for the Japanese American Citizens League as a lawyer, advocating on behalf of incarcerated Japanese folks. Purcell and the JACL needed a primary plaintiff to challenge the incarceration, and they chose Mitsui Endo. They sent word to her in an internment camp to see if she was willing to be the primary plaintiff in the case. Endo was hesitant, but she decided to say yes. Years later, she told an author this, I agreed to do it at that moment because they said it's for the good of everybody. And so I said, well, if that's it, I'll go ahead and do it. Purcell and Endo filed their petition July 12, 1942, and began a chain of events that eventually led to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in her favor in December of 1944, which ended up leading to the release of all the Japanese Americans and the end of the internment camps. Endo stayed incarcerated in camps the entire time the courts debated her case. At one point, the government offered to let her return home in exchange for dropping the lawsuit. Hey, you and your entire family can go back. Just drop this. She said no. Mitsui Endo knew what Moses and Shipra and Pua and Pharaoh's daughter all knew, that none of us are free until we are all free. She stepped out in faith and pursued justice because it was for the good of everybody. Can you imagine? She's in an internment camp, 22 years old, and she gets word that she's supposed to be the primary plaintiff to represent these 120,000 of her brothers and sisters, and she doesn't want to do it. She said, but they told me it was for the good of everybody. So I said, yes. As Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's been a tough week. It's been a tough week. 
On Tuesday, trans youth and their families in Texas became the target of wicked political stunt, which will undoubtedly increase the already sky-high suicide rates in that community. On Thursday, Russia invaded the sovereign democracy of Ukraine, started a completely unjustified war, which has already cost hundreds of lives and destabilized the entire world. In the anniversaries of Executive Order 9066 and Trayvon Martin's murder, remind us again how much work there is to be done when it comes to racial justice in our country. That is in the last week. There is injustice all around us. There are so many things in our world standing against love and perpetuating systems of disordered power for the purpose of dominations. And y'all, as Christians, we are called to stand against them. We are called to pursue justice for the marginalized. Now, I don't know where God has placed you. I don't know what he's leading you to or what kind of advantages or disadvantages you are dealing with. But I know this. God is calling you to do something. He's calling you to do something. Like we said last week, you can't do everything, but you can do something. And that something looks different to everyone. You may be called to pray in your room or to protest in the streets, to post something online or to have a conversation offline, to write a poem, compose a song, create a work of art. Justice work is wherever God has placed you and however he has called you. And even the smallest acts of defiant justice are used by God to change the world. Just ask Shipra and Pua. For my seven-year-old, justice work this week looked like making a sign. A lot of y'all know that I've been involved for a few years in some anti-death penalty work. And this week we... Uh, did a rally at the Capitol for Melissa Lucio, who's set to be executed in April. I'm not even, there's a lot of issues with her case. I'm not going to get into it. It's not the purpose of this. But on Monday at dinner, I was telling my family that I was going to be late coming home, reminding Amy, we talked about it a while back, but reminding Amy, telling the boys I was going to be late coming home on Tuesday because I was going to this rally. And Judah, my seven-year-old, asked, tell me about it. What is that? So we've talked about death penalty work. We've talked about that. And he says, can I go? I want to go. I said, no, not this time, bud. Maybe, maybe next time, but not this time. And he got up from dinner, went to the art supply closet, grabbed some markers, cut out this little thing from some shoes he got recently. It's an Under Armour box. <laughs> now, you can't read it, but it says, do not execute people. The big rainbow flag, rainbow over around it. As he was writing, he asked me, how do you spell execute? And I told him, and he said, how do you spell People. I said, well, don't you, do you want to put Melissa's name on it? Do not execute Melissa. He said, no, there'll be other signs with her name, right? I said, yeah. He said, I think if I put do not execute Melissa, they'll think, well, it's okay to execute other people. We shouldn't execute anybody. I said, yeah, bud. P-E-O-P-L-E. 
Do not execute people. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And you have no idea what God will do with that something that you do. When you feel that prompting and you start to ask, why me? Who am I? Isn't there somebody else? God will respond with those same comforting words that he gave to Moses. I am with you. And when it all feels too overwhelming, pause, take a breath, and ask God to show you where and how he wants you to step out and pursue his justice. Now, I know it sounds corny and a little bit trite, but I fully believe if God has called you to it, he is going to sustain you through it. He is with you. Just like he was with Miriam and Moses, with Shipra and Pua, with James Purcell and Mitsui Endo. As we finish this morning, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We want to give you space to hear from God and to discern what he's calling you to step into. So I'm going to pray and invite the band back up. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So let's pray. Lord God, we come before you exhausted and overwhelmed, struggling and in pain, hurting for our brothers and sisters who are hurting, hurting for humanity here in our city, in our state, and around the world. I know for so many of us, we don't even know what to do. It all feels like too much. It all feels inescapable. It all feels like what little thing that we could do could even make a difference, God. But thank you for the story of Shipra and Pua, of Moses' mom and Miriam, of Pharaoh's daughter and Moses. God, whose little acts of defiant justice sparked a movement of liberation. I pray that we would say yes as you call us into these things. You would show us what they are. You would remind us that you are with us and that we would by faith and with your courage step out and do them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.